welcome to another episode of The Long Drive Home in the Dark. I'm your host, Pat. I am co-host truck. Driving along on freeways in and around Dallas. And today we're going to be talking about a another Old Testament story. So the general question was like, was I'd like to know more about the Old Testament, what it means to to us today, what the stories mean, what they mean to us today, kind of a thing. Last time we covered uh, Joshua. Uh, the main thing from, theme from Joshua was uh, trusting God, doing His will, and, and clearing yourself as a Christian of the uh, you know sin effectively, and your attachment to sin. The, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't remember exactly what chapter I want to say. It's chapter like six or seven, or maybe eight. But there's a chapter where Joshua and the, the Israelite, Joshua leads the Israelites into fighting off seven different kings of various Canaanite groups within the Holy Land who are occupying the border, you know, cities in the Holy Land. Joshua sort of, the, the chapter is pretty much just, you know, Joshua and the Israelites slowly beating all of these these kings and taking these cities, and there's seven cities, and I don't, you know, I don't, the Bible doesn't really have coincidences, <laughs> so it's not a coincidence that you have a very direct uh, connection between the concept of the seven deadly sins and the overthrow of these um, seven empires that are occupying the Holy Land, seven cities. That's, of course, not the whole of the campaign within the Holy Land. There's plenty of other uh, armies or cities or, you know, alliances that the Israelites defeat. But it's just interesting that there is one chapter that's sort of devoted to these seven. Um, and so that's, that's Joshua. After Joshua, we move into the book of Judges. That's we're going to start talking about some of the judges. And the judges have different... Each judge is, you know, his own different story, and they have different lessons in the story. Um, judge, unlike Joshua and a lot of, you know, Exodus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and, and the... But, you know, Torah, after Genesis, and really after you get to the story of Joseph, Genesis takes on a very kind of grand-sweeping narrative. And the Torah takes on a kind of grand-sweeping narrative after Genesis. The, you know, interspersed with the law. In the, this is how you run your society, and this is how you do all the religious rituals and stuff, but interspersed in that is this kind of grand narrative. This sort of just continues into Joshua, where you know Moses uh, dies at the end of Deuteronomy, and then Joshua takes up in charge at that point. Joshua is simply Israelites into the land came through the promise. Judges reminds me a lot more of the early uh, first, you know, two thirds or so of Genesis. You have these, and not even like. Because the really early portions of Genesis, outside the, the 
first couple of chapters, which are about the fall, once you get outside of those two chapters, it's sort of very tale-like, you know, these are stories about things that happen, and then you get sort of individuals that start getting, you know, you get Noah and Abraham, Joshua and Isaac, and you get their sort of stories, and that's that's more like how Judges is. It, there's a person, and it tells a story about that person, and they that person was a judge of Israel. What that means is that they were in charge. And so this kind of harkens back to an exodus where Moses is acting as judge over all Israel. And literally what that meant was the people, you know, the Hebrews were bringing their quarrels and their problems and whatever to Moses to solve them. And that's, you know, this model of government is not the one we have in use today, but it was pretty much all the way up to the modern democracies. In the modern democracies, in order to solve problems, we all kind of get together and try and find a solution, at least in a working democracy. I would argue that we're not in one of those, but that's politics. Either way, in a working democracy, or republic, or whatever, the people get together and try and solve problems using government. Uh, in non-democratic governments, what invariably ends up happening is people have problems, and so they go to whoever is in charge to solve it. It's sort of a different, kind of a different way to approach government. Uh, and that, you know, you have this in like the courts, you know, the court. You have monarchies, right? But you always had a, a court around the monarchy, and that was kind of literally what the court did. Was it saw, you know, the king saw people, you know, heard their problems, and then rendered judgment. At least good kings did. Plenty of other kings, you know, they left all that to their advisors, and then they went back to the rich people. Uh, which I think, you know, I don't hate the rich. Um, but there are plenty of rich people who are not acting prudent with their wealth. So, don't, uh, you know, don't, don't miss me with people that hate the rich. I love the poor, don't get me wrong. I, I do think the rich should do more for the poor, but that doesn't make me hate the rich. It just makes me think they should do more for the poor. By the way, we're getting, I'm slipping into politics a lot here, but Judges, Judges is about individuals who, who ruled effectively over Israel, and we can kind of assume that that's more or less what we're talking about here when we get the word judge, is that the, that's what they were doing. They were fulfilling this role, you know, determining issues between people, um, you know, why they came into the position of power they're at doesn't normally get uh, delved into in scripture. I'm sure if I was to read uh, the Mishpahs in the Talmud that many of uh, these individuals in Judges have uh, more elaborate backstories. But as far as sacred scripture goes, we don't have a lot about most of them. And even sacred scripture... Uh, especially in the beginning, the first several judges, there is not a lot about them. I think one of the first ones is like Caleb's son, 
Caleb is the other the other spy who went into Israel with Joshua, who, uh, like Joshua, thought that they, you know, the Israelites should um, still invade the land of Cana, and him and Joshua were overruled, and that resulted in the 40 years of wandering in the desert. So Caleb, Caleb and Joshua are the two living, you know, two Israelites from that time, or the two Hebrews from that time frame that were allowed to enter the, the promised land. Everybody else was not under the age of, everybody else over the age of 10, or sorry, 20, was not allowed to enter. Um, so that's sort of where, where we're at with the book of Judges. And it's this, Judges covers this time frame from the death of Joshua until the foundation of the kingdom of Israel. And so the, the, we move into, after Judges, you go into the books of, of Samuel, Samuel 1 and 2, and they're about uh, the prophet Samuel and the establishment of the kingdom under Saul, and then the, the sort of reestablishment under David, and then it going from there. Um, the judges in general are a lot of them don't get a lot of like I said Caleb you know he's mentioned but his judgeship doesn't it lasts for some amount of like we get the amount of time it lasts maybe how he became judge but we don't get a lot about it effectively each judge uh, comes into, you know, what, what happens is the, the typical uh, formula that occurs is Israel falls away from God, they start worshiping idols, uh, God abandons Israel to some invading force, so it could be the Medians, it could be the Midnites, it could be the Amorites, it could be um, the Philistines, and then uh you know, Israel repents, calls upon God to save them, and God empowers a judge. You know, you get the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And the, the empowered judge is empowered to save Israel. And then they do. Uh, and then they judge Israel for a certain amount of time. Usually it's like 20 or 30 or 40 years. And then they die, and then Israel sins again. And so the the generic theme here <laughs> that you see is that when you fall away from God, things tend to go badly for you. Uh, and that's as far as looking at it from the perspective of a, as a Christian, it doesn't. What it doesn't mean is it's it's sort of, it's a balance. You have to treat this as a balance. It does, it's not saying if you stay with God, everything is going to be, you know, roses and garden parties. But it's also saying if you leave God, it definitely won't be. Um, and that's that's a big that's a big lesson in Scripture in general is this notion that yeah, life life is not easy and it's not going to be easy. And nobody in the Bible promises it's going to be easy. And anybody who tells you otherwise is selling a lie. But life is not going to be easy. But if you 
don't stick with God, then it's going to be even harder. It's guaranteed to be worse. And that's sort of, I mean, that's a generic theme, biblically in general, and that specifically in Judges, that's a general theme. Um, you know, we don't have a situation whereby the Israelites are, um, you know, we're not presented with a scenario whereby the Israelites are still with God and then defeat an enemy that comes to take them over in Judges. What we have is the Israelites do bad, you know, they start worshiping idols, and then they're taken over, and, you know, then they have to cry out. Uh, so we don't get the, the other side of that, but that's that's the general theme. If you, if, and what you effectively have to do in a lot of these stories to really get the message in a, in a, in a, a personal perspective is put yourself not in the place of the judge, but in the place of Israel. You have to look at yourself and say, okay, where in my life am I being idolatrous? Which means, where am I worshiping something that is not God? Where, where have I put something higher than God in my life? Whatever that might be. Um, you know, addiction is an easy one to go to because, it, you know, obviously. Uh, but there's lots of other things people worship more than God. Um, even seemingly good things, uh, you know, like family, or or work, or um, you know, a single relationship. All of those things are can be and are good in an, you know in general. But when you put them on a pedestal that's above God, then they're not good because the reality is God is going to make you a better family person, family man, family woman. You know, husband, wife, mother, father, uh, son, daughter, uh, brother, sister. God's going to make you better at that than you're going to be able to make yourself if you try and put those folks before God. Uh, and that, that's just, you know, and it, it took me a long time to kind of grasp that one. But the, that's sort of where you have to put yourself in these stories. It's not in the, in the feet of the, the individual judges, but in the feet of... Um, Israel, and you have to ask yourself, okay, where am I being idolatrous? Where do I need to stop and cry out to the Lord? Because it's it's the eventuality is any, anywhere you're idolatrous is going to eventually run roughshod over your life. It's gonna it's gonna hurt things. It's gonna ruin things. It's gonna make you know it's gonna make things worse. <laughs> Even if they're bad, it will make them worse. Kind of a deal. So that, that's, in general, that's what you have to do when you're asking the question of what do these stories mean for me in a modern sense when you're reading the book of Judges. Because, you know, you don't put yourself in the feet of the Judges. Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. The primary judge I want to start with is the most cantankerous of them, or the most problematic, really. Um, and his name is Jephthah, uh, or Jephthah, Jephthah. I'm sure there's a way to pronounce it in Hebrew that I, or Aramaic, 
that I'm just not going to be able to do jazz, duh, something like that. Um, he is a judge, he's, he's comes about at the end of the book of judges, he judges Israel for a certain amount of time, he uh, saves Israel from the Amorites, if I remember correctly, uh, who were a group of folks who had been previously taken care of, quote unquote, uh, in Joshua's day, by Joshua and the tribes of Israel under Joshua. However, they they kind of come back, uh, and uh, Joshua's a Gileadite, um, and or not Joshua, sorry, uh, Jephthah is a Gileadite. He is a tragic figure in a lot of ways, and he's also. Uh, you know, I spoke before how an individual, you reading these as a Christian in the modern era, the idea is to put yourself in the in the place of Israel. So his story starts, like most of them, where Israel has, has forsaken the Lord and has gone to idolatry. And Jephthah in particular has done this uh, pretty clearly. And on top of that, he he gets cast out by his own family and more or less takes refuge. He, he, he forms a band of evil men, uh, scoundrels, you know, depending on which version of the gospel, or not gospel, which version of the Bible you read. They're, they're not good folks. And, or wicked men, or however it's put, and he settles in another town. And he's, you know, so he's, he's the leader of a band of men, but because of his strength, he's able to uh, raise up, rise up effectively against the, Am the Ammonites, or Amorites. Jephthah is problematic in a lot of ways, because you see, he very clearly, like a lot of the judges, you get the feeling that they're decent fellows, or, or women, because there were women judges, that they're decent people good people, you know, what we would call, you know, morally upright, almost none of them get called the, the one of the key words you always got to look for, the word righteous. You know, Job was righteous, Noah was righteous, Abraham was not, he was counted as righteous for his faith, um, you know, Enoch, I don't know if that actually ever says Enoch is righteous in the Old Testament, but I believe Paul tell, says that he is in Hebrews. Uh, and Jephthah gets brought up in the in the um, in the New Testament as well. I think by Paul, I can't remember which book it's in, but where he mentions several of the judges as as effectively people who are used by uh, God to save His people. But he's not a righteous man, and, and most of the, as far as we can tell. It's not really said of many of the judges or any of them, if I remember correctly, that any of them are righteous. And Jephthah is obviously not, right? He's on the other side of the spectrum. He's, he's the leader of a band of wicked men who's been dispossessed by his own family and has taken, taken up. And he effectively gets empowered by the Lord to uh, rise up, and, and he rises up with the, the people of Gilead. And... I'm going to say it's Ephraim and maybe Manasseh and goes on and, and deposes the Amorites. 
or fights against them as they're coming, and then judges Israel for some time after that. And he, he does something that's pretty awful. Uh, he, so, if I remember correctly, you know, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and then he makes a, a bargain with God, which is, it. so this is piece, this is piece of the story, number one, that should, should come to you. Don't make deals with God. Um, number one, because God's going to hold you to him in some respects. But number two, because you don't know what God wants, <laughs> you know, um, the, the, the only real deal you should ever, quote unquote, deal you should ever make to God, to God is, is your worship and the proper worship and sacrifice and the proper sacrifice is your life. And so you should give your life to God. And that's what you do at every mass. Uh, when you say, you know, accept my sacrifice and yours, maybe acceptable to the Lord our God, your sacrifice is your life. That, that is what you're attempting to do, is conform your life to the will of God. That is really the only deal you make with God. And the, the deal, the, what you get back from God is not necessarily uh, garden parties and roses. It is joy. Um, it is love. And it's grace. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's happiness. Um, and indeed, the other side of the promise is that things are much, much worse. Not trying to scare you or anything, but that's, I mean, that's both the lesson we get from a lot of stories in the Bible and the lived experience in the Bible. Jephthah makes a deal with God. He says, God, I will sacrifice to you whatever comes out of the door of my house upon my return if you give the Ammonites or Amorites into my hand. Um, there's a lot of things wrong with this. And so the first, the first, problem uh, we run into is actually not a problem with the story, but it's the first problem a lot of people have with the story because the words, the Lord came upon, or the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and then this happens after that. And so people, it's, it's easy to expect that the Spirit of the Lord is directing Jephthah to do this, but that's not true. Uh, Judges is not saying, hey, this is what you should do. Judges is just recording what happened. The book is just recording what happened. And that's a big lesson you should always understand from the Bible is very few people are full-blown people you can emulate. You know, Jesus, uh, Mary, John, the Baptist, uh, and uh, Joseph pretty much all of their actions and what they say in the Bible, you can emulate that. Perfectly em emulatable people. Everybody else got some problems. <laughs> and, and the Bible is not telling you everything they did, every, everything of all of these people was squeaky clean and it's the best thing ever. No, no, no. Plenty of this is, is cautionary tales. Hey, this is how this guy bleeped up. You know, some of them get, you know, get a second chance, like Saul slash Paul. Um, he gets a second chance. Jephthah, on the other hand, it doesn't look like it's going to go well for him. But Jephthah makes, uh, so, this is a this is really problematic, what Jephthah says here. And it's doubly so because Jephthah, the, Ammonite, the Amorites make a, a plea to Jephthah and, you know, the, the 
tribes of Israel who were in their former land saying, hey, this was our land and we're going to come take it back. And Jephthah basically tells them, uh, effectively the story we have from uh, the Torah, which talks about the Israelites coming into the land and taking it, because they were, the Ammonites did not let them through. Like they were going to go through those lands to, to, in order to get to the promised land, but those kings blocked them, and so God said, yeah, I'm giving them into your hands. And they, you know, destroyed them. And so that's what Jephthah writes back, and he quotes the scripture, effectively, in several places. So he knows the scripture, and yet he says, I'm going to offer sacrifice, you know, whatever comes out of my door. The scriptures very clearly list out what you need to sacrifice in what occasion to God and list out where. You know, they list the, the you know, it's for this, it's two turtle doves. For this, it's a young goat. For this, it's a lamb. For this, it's a bull. For that, and it has to be done in this way, in this place, by this person. Like the, the scriptures are very strict, the Old Testament, very strict about how sacrifice is supposed to be offered. And Jephthah just says, I'm going to sacrifice whatever I, you know, whatever comes out of this doorway. Very problematic in the first place. The second place, how are you going to know what's going to come out of that doorway? And what exactly are you ready to sacrifice that could walk through your own doorway? Right, so there's folks who think, okay, well, maybe we're talking about the kind of building where you have a second-story uh, living space is where the people lived, and the first-story space is where the animals lived. And this was a common uh, housing arrangement. Um, it's sort of like a stable house combination. You know, in most American farm setups, you have a house that is separate from the barn, and, and if you have um, horses or cows or whatever, it's separate from where you keep, you know, those, you know, separate from the stable or whatever, but yeah, there was a common building configuration in that time frame that had the house on top of, effectively on top of the barn, or on top of the stable, and so... You could say, okay, well, he's going to sacrifice whatever comes out, you know, the doorway on the bottom there, so the stable or the barn doorway. But still, uh, he's in, he's still going to be potentially in violation of the sacrificial laws in that case. If we're not talking about that setup, then, you know, who knows? I mean, it's an agricultural society, so it's possible that, that one of their uh, beasts of burden or, you know, smaller animals, a goat, or a sheep, or, you know, maybe even a donkey or, or something would come in and out of their door. You also have family pets, um, or, you know, pet, maybe a strong word, a guard dog, or, or chickens, or, you know, um, birds of some kind, but, you know, there's also people there, right? And this displays a, a very problematic issue, because... Jephthah knows, he obviously knows the scriptures, and he's, he's effectively choosing to make an oath that disobeys them. And the scriptures have some very strong words about oaths as well. 
and how you should or should not take them. Jesus effectively says, don't, don't, <laughs> don't take oaths, right? Uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, in the in the Torah, it effectively says, "Don't swear by the Lord, um, or by His footstool, you know, or by your life, because it's not yours." It's basically saying, like, you have nothing to to swear by, to make an oath by. Um, but you know, vows were very taken very seriously in that time frame as well. And so, all of this is problematic. And on top of that, you have this sort of uh, intimation of potential human sacrifice, which is, you know, the thing we talked about with Joshua, it's one of the big things that the kind of sacrifice that God does not want. Um, I haven't covered the story of, of Isaac and uh, Abraham and Isaac, and I probably should, because it's very highly misunderstood. Like in the modern era, most people look at that story and say, yeah, but in the end, God said not to kill uh, Isaac, so it's all okay. Like, it, there's a lot more to that story than just that one meeting. It, it's it's actually a multifaceted story. One of the big points in that story is making it very, very clear that God doesn't actually want human sacrifice, at least not in the killing of the human sort of way. He wants us to sacrifice our lives to him um, and put ourselves into his will in accordance with his will and live by his will. But he doesn't want us to kill each other for him. So it's, it's very clear, you know, you have a very uh, clear picture here that Jephthah is sort of a man who is living with the pieces of the Torah or the law that he wants, aka the part that says, you know, this is our land now because God said it is, and not the pieces that he finds inconvenient, you know, which is the sacrificial laws. And the very clear laws about the treatment of other people. And th this, so, you know, we have kind of the, the general prohibition on oaths come out of this. The second piece that comes out of this is you get a, an idea of Jephthah's character, or at least his mindset. And it's a very big indictment on the modern world. I, you know, and I say modern world. Um, actually, yeah, it is a big indictment on the modern world. It's an indictment of people from all times. But, it, you know, the modern world is caught up with itself in, you know, relativism and uh, individual, hyper-individualism. You know, what I believe about the world is true and what, what I make believe in my mind is true about me, and I, I determine everything, period, in the story, and uh, the world doesn't get to determine what things are in the universe, there is no objective reality, that sort of thing, and that, that is very in, in 
uh, inherent in what Jephthah's doing here, which is he's taking the parts of the scripture that he likes, and he's casting off the parts that he doesn't like, and then he's filling that void with something else. And that is, to a T, uh, the, the biggest problem with your average modern believer in general. And that is, uh, that is a big, big problem with uh, Protestantism. It's a big, big problem, like with Protestantism from a theological perspective. It's a big, big problem in Catholicism from a practical perspective. In Protestantism, because of the uh, the focus on the individual's determination of what is what the Bible means, so effectively what truth is, you have um, an easy ability to look at a Bible passage, see it very clearly say something like, um, you know, being uh, angry to the point of, of hatred or of, um, dislike is, or, you know, yeah, being angry to the point of hatred uh, is going to damn you to hell and casting that off and saying, no, no, it's okay to hate certain people. Um, it's okay to hate the rich. It's okay to hate gay people. It's okay to hate, you know, other Christians. It's okay to hate Muslims. It's okay to hate. It's okay to hate, right? Um, because I determine what the Bible passage really means. And so there's that piece of it. In the Catholic, in the practical side, you get what we, call, we commonly call cafeteria-style Catholics. And it's sort of, a, you know, I'll believe most of the theological stuff. Not all of it, obviously, because there's a big lack of folks who believe in the real presence and um, some other things. But I'll believe most of the dogmas and doctrines or stuff. But the moral law, eh, you know, God just wants us to have a good time. You know, he's not really concerned about us, you know, doing what he said, you know, acting in, in a righteous manner. You know, man, it's just your opinion, man. Sorry, I'm, I'm quoting a, a dude. So... And that, that's the problem you get in Catholicism in a, in a practice sort of way. People pick and choose what uh, portions, especially of the moral law, they feel like complying with. And the other ones that are hard, they make an excuse. And that, you know, uh, if you read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, it's kind of like the whole indictment of, of uh, human nature he gives, I think, in the first chapter. Or not the first chapter first book, and um, it's about how we're very big on excusing ourselves from failing um, to live up to a moral standard or an ethical standard, but we're real quick to judge other people. But that's, that's sort of the, the, the lesson here, is to look at your own life and see if you're being Jephthah. If you are perfectly okay with God's law, with God's will in certain areas of your life, but not in others, and if the if not in others, is it really due to you know the the parts of that moral law or or you know church teaching 
that uh, you think are actually, you know, wrong, that you think the, the church and the, the Bible got wrong, or the church got wrong, or Jesus got wrong, or is is it uh, is it just because it's convenient for you and it would be difficult, or, or you know, possibly close to impossible, you know, if you're suffering from an addiction or something, to live a different way. So that that is that's the second piece of what we get from the story of Jotha is you know the, the kind of prohibition on taking oaths, swearing oaths, making deals with God, and then the second one is the picking and choosing. The you know do I pick and choose what I feel like is right and wrong, or do I actually believe there's an objective standard? And is the objective standard objective? Or do I believe there's an objective standard, but I subjectively decide what's on that objective standard um, based on what I feel and what's easy for me? So that's that's sort of, it's not the beginning of Jephthah's stories. It's actually closing on, on the end. Um, so Jephthah makes this, this promise, this vow, and then he goes off through the hill country, or, yeah, through Gilead and through a couple other uh, territories. He raises an army and he goes and defeats the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them into his hand. Okay, so then now he's beholden. So he goes home, and lo and behold, the first person at the door to greet him is his daughter, right? Playing a tambourine, you know, happy that he's home, that he's defeated, you know, there's a celebration the Ammonites, we're all very happy. And, you know, of course, Jephthah despairs, because now he feels like he has to kill his daughter. And he tells her, you know, what have you done? And she says, well, you have to fulfill your vow to the Lord, and, you know, give me two months to go and mourn myself and my virginity. And, um, and that part, uh, let me explain that part a little bit. When she says, let me mourn my virginity. What she means is, so the concept of uh, patrimony, patrimony, that conceptually means a lot, lot, lot more in this era than it does today, at least in modern modern U.S. and modern Western world. The concept of what's going to come after me, you know, having children, uh, having grandchildren. Um, you know, the, the, the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as abundant as the stars or as the sea and the sands of the sea. You know, a lot of people might jump back from that in bullshit in the modern era. That was a very common thing. Um, and I think it plays into sort of our, not just our, our modern quote-unquote sensibilities, but also our position at the time. You, you gotta understand the further back in time you go, the more of an effect each individual has on the entirety of the future. Right? I think if you've been, um, if you've ever contemplated time travel, or just, you know, you, yeah, you contemplated time travel, what happens when you change the effects of one incident in the past? How far forward does it ripple? what does it change, uh, you get 
this this kind of sense that it's important that folks in this era thought it was very, very important the kind of uh, patrimony they set up, the sort of the, the historical significance. Now, they probably didn't necessarily intellectualize it that way. Maybe they did. That's one of the things. We don't really know how long human history has gone on for. Um, and I say human history in the, in the sense that you, know, you have what we would commonly refer to as civilizations. You know, we, we, we've got an idea that goes back to, you know, some odd BC in, in the, you know, in Egypt and whatnot, but we really don't have a good, good grasp on how far back, how many empires have risen and fallen. And, you know, it's the, the story of Ozymandias. You just find two legs in the desert blasted plane around it with nothing there and it says behold Ozymandias ruler you know ruler of the world you know look upon all that I rule over in despair I, you know how many empires have risen and fallen like that and, and just don't exist anymore and, and won't ever because you know records fail even you know even electronic records eventually will fail Stuff gets corrupted, you know, servers get lost, fire. Fire is still a very real thing. It still jacks stuff up. You know, they say once it's on the internet, it's there forever, and that's sort of semi-true, but it won't always be true. Um, so, where was I going with that? I don't remember. But, but oh yeah, so the concept that um, she was bemoaning her virginity was effectively, you know, she, she never got to take part in, um, you know, effectively the creation of life. She never got to bear sons and daughters. And that was a very important thing. Very, very important thing to people in that time frame. Um, it's still a very important thing to people in our time frame. So that's what she's talking here. So she goes off for two months, and then um, she comes back. And, and the line in the Bible is this, is this, is, and then Jephthah did as he vowed. You know, it doesn't say Jephthah sacrificed her to the Lord or Jephthah killed her. You know, it doesn't go into graph. It just one line, and it says Jephthah did as he vowed. So the assumption is he sacrificed his own daughter to God, which... I mean, I can't think of a better way to piss God off, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> you know, not that God uh, has emotions in the same manner as we do, um, or even in general, um, you know, given philosophically what God is. But he, so um, the piece of this story is, if you have made a vow to God, and God gives you a very clear sign that it was a bad vow and you shouldn't have made it, don't go through with it. You know, that's one of the, the lessons here. Because, you know, Jephthah comes home and he's made a vow to sacrifice whatever, he comes out, whatever comes out of the door. Problematic vow. Well, let's say a chicken comes out. Or, you know, a goat. Or maybe the right sacrificial animal comes out. 
you know, he's the, the right animal for a Thanksgiving sacrifice, walks through that door, and there happens to be, you know, a, a priest and a Levite there that correctly instructs Jopta to go to Shiloh, which is where the, the tabernacle is at this point, to go sacrifice to the Lord. All those stars line up, right? Okay, then you then you go through with it because obviously everything's correct. But what happens instead? All of the you know the opposite of the stars aligning, the stars de-align, and you know you're presented with not only having to kill a human being, but having to kill your own daughter, which in the case of Jatha is literally his only child, and so he is both sacrificing her patrimony, but his own patrimony. Uh, and this, <sighs> this is a, a very clear sign to Jephthah, if he, or Jephthah, if he had been paying attention, not to go forward with the vow. You made a bad vow. Um, and that sort of goes back to the don't make, you know, don't, don't make deals with God in the first place. But if you do make a deal with God and it turns out to be a, a bad deal, like the thing you have to do is a sin, then don't do it. God is not terribly concerned about your oath or your vow. He's more concerned that you stay in a state of grace. He doesn't want you to sin. Very, very clear. Because sinning is breaking your relationship with God. God is not interested in you keeping an oath or um, sticking to the, the, the pieces of a deal you made with God while also severing your relationship with God, especially in, if it's in such a horrific way as, as murder and um, you know, murdering your own child. I, I, human sacrifice just always blows my mind. Um, I just, like, I both get it and I don't get it. I, I mean, there's just so much effort involved in raising a child, having a child, raising a child. Uh, and I get it. That's what makes them, um, you know, worthy or worthwhile. Or, but, I, no, no, just no. So, you know, that's a lot of people... They they have problems thinking that human sacrifice ever happened at all, and that that's probably why. It's because it just seems like a ridiculous concept. But you know, people do terrible things within the culture they're part of. Um, you know, we look upon public ex execution with a terrible uh, as the most terrible barbaric you know practice. And but the reality is, it was it was a uh, still a common thing in like the 1950s. Now, granted, the they weren't publicly executing people in in the prison system, but lynchings were still fairly common into the 1950s and 60s. And a lynching is a public execution. It's just a public ex execution that's carried out by the mob and not by the the civil authority. It doesn't matter. It's a public execution. Um, and so. You know, we're not that we're not that far from it, and it's interesting to think what you, you know. What would be interesting to you, or what would you be into, or what are you into that is simply a matter of your society, 
and that, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 years hence, the civilizations that exist at that time, when they look back at us now, they're going to cringe. You know, I think abortion's definitely going to be in that in that piece of it. They're going to look back and say, what a barbaric bunch of assholes killing their own children in swaths and, and just utterly wrecking the future by doing that. And I don't think we're going to get a pass for that. Abortion's not the wave of the future. It's eventually going to go away. And those, and the, when it does, the people there are going to look back at us like we're monsters. So, just like we're looking back at these people who are sacrificing their, and Jaffa, who's going to sacrifice his daughter as a monster, because that's, I mean, that's the right way to look at this. There's biblical critics who will look at this story and say, well, the Bible is promoting uh, human sacrifice because Jephthah is chosen of the Lord and he, he sacrificed somebody. And I'm like, no, like you, you're an idiot. <laughs> you don't understand the Bible. Uh, because just because the Bible records something does not mean it's promoting something. The Bible records plenty of terrible things that it's not promoting. And simply because Jephthah uh, was used by God to accomplish something God wanted accomplished doesn't mean that Jephthah was a good person. It's very clear from his story that he's not. He's just not. He's not a very good person. And so that's one of the lessons that comes out of it is that God will use people to accomplish his goals and his will, even if um, those people are horrible. But that doesn't mean he, he likes what they're doing or that he approves of what they're doing. Um, it's sort of like, you know, the concept that God will bring a good out of every evil or will bring good out of every evil. It doesn't mean he wants the evil just because you bring a good out of it. It would have been better to just have been good from the beginning. And we, we covered that in a previous podcast. And that's sort of the, the lesson here. If you have, and, and that just doesn't, that doesn't just apply to God. Any deal that you have made with anybody anywhere that would result in you committing a sin, a moral sin or venial sin or any sin, really, that damages your relationship with God is a bad deal and you shouldn't follow through with it, period, end of story. Um, and yeah, that could suck in a lot of ways. It really could. Uh, because, you know, deals are, are how is how society operates. So you could make bad deals in your life. But that's, that's sort of the lesson here. If you've made a bad deal that causes you to do something terrible, don't do it. And that's, you know, just sort of the generalized uh, theme that we get out of out of Jephthah's... Jeff, yeah, Jephthah's uh, being a judge, um, a lot of people look at this story with a lot of confusion, uh, and that's because they approach the Bible in a very wrong way. Um, there's a, a good book out there by Trent Horn called um, Hard Sayings, and it looks at, at you know passages like this, Bible the passages people have difficulties with. Uh, it's a pretty thick book. It covers a lot of material. 
at a lot of arguments people have against the Bible. And one of the problems people, or one of the rules, he proposes a number of rules when reading the Bible, and one of them is just because the Bible records it doesn't mean the Bible recommends it, right? Um, you know, we see a very clear distinction between the Mosaic Law that was, um, you know, that the Israelites lived under, and then the law of the church, or the moral law we get from Christ. There are definitely differences there. And, um, you know, it's a difference of revelation. The Mosaic Law comes from, you know, Moses and the Israelites was given to Moses for a, no, at the time, nomadic people who had just left Egypt, who lived in the desert with scarce resources uh, and um, no permanent, uh, you know, location of life, and to run a whole society. It's a very different set of laws or moral laws that we get from Christ because these, the, the moral laws we get from Christ are m much more individualistic. They're not about running a society. They're about living as a child of God. Uh, and there are some pieces of it that are societal-based that deal with the church and the setup of the church. And there's not a lot. Most of it is very targeted towards the individual. So, but you get a, a lot of Christians because they're so familiar with the gospel and, and it's primarily what they've read and what they've had preached to them and what they do when they encounter the Old Testament, they encounter these characters in the Old Testament who are not good people. <laughs> and their expectation of figures in the Bible is kind of set by Jesus, um, you know, as the good man, and you know, or in the Bible overall as the good book, although we've covered it's not a book, it's, it's a collection, it's a library, it's a collection of a bunch of 70-some-odd books, so it's like three. I say 73 a lot. I need to go actually count it, because I have this nagging feeling it's actually like 74, but whatever. <laughs> I have to look again. At least the Catholic, the uh, Catholic Bible. Um, like we've said, there's there's a difference in the Protestant Bible. There's a difference in the Orthodox. Some of the Orthodox Bible. I think the Eastern Orthodox use the same canon we do. Maybe they have the uh, two other books, two other Esdruses, and the Manasseh, Song of Manasseh, and Lamentations two. Um, if you want, like, the Orthodox group that has all of the books, like the biggest canon, you go to the Ethiopian Orthodox. Uh, they have the largest canon, which includes the Book of Enoch. It includes, I think, all four. So we just have, in ours, we have Esdras 1 and 2, or Ezra and Nehemiah, as they're uh, denoted in common Catholic, in, in modern Catholic Bibles. Uh, you read the old ones, but I think it's Esdras 1 and 2. But they have Esdras, there's an Esdras 3 and 4, there's a Song of Manasseh, there's uh, Lamentations 2, uh, probably not actually written by Jeremiah, like Lamentations 1. Um, there is uh, the other Maccabees, so you have Maccabees 1 and 2, and then 3 and 4. Um, you know, 1 and 2, 1 is kind of a history, 2 is... Semi-history, semi, -history, semi um, 
stories of people living in that time frame. It's more like uh, Judith and Ruth and, and Daniel. I mean, Daniel's also a prophetic book, so it, and that's that's kind of how it is. It's like Daniel is both a prophetic book and a story about um, Jewish life under the Babylonians, um, <coughs> whereas uh, you know most of the books in the Bible have a singular uh, literary type. Daniel is actually a multi-type book, and the same is with Maccabees, the second Maccabees, because it has historical aspects to it. And it has, and the same with Kings one, right? The first Kings, uh, unless you, if you reckon in the old, the old ways, uh, it would be Kings three. But um, we call uh, Samuel, Samuel and Samuel two, and then you have Kings, and then you have Chronicles. Uh, and sometimes Chronicles are referred to. It gets confusing. Either way, what we call Kings one now. Um, you know, a, a big portion of Kings 1 is given over to, this, to the stories of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, and then also the history of the kings. So, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it kind of straddles uh, literary types. And um, so, but yeah, so that's, that's the, the, the kind of a most expansive canon. Like I covered in the... Uh, Protestant Reformation, you know, that was one of the big things that came out of the Reformation was the Catholic Church said, you know, for sure, definitely these books are um, scripture, are sacred scripture, you know, considered inerrant, God-breathed, uh, fallible, kind of a, those sort of books within their literary um, style. So, I don't get that, but, but either way, so if you approach the Bible thinking that every character in the Bible is going to be a figure of Christ or Christ-like somehow, uh, you're doing it wrong. Uh, the Bible does record history, like I said, uh, Judges is mostly history. Uh, Judges is history. Um, it's told more in the style of, say, like the histories from Genesis than in like the histories from Chronicles. Chronicles is very caught up in dates and patrimony and uh, you know, who begot who. Whatnot. It's very dry. <laughs> um, whereas Genesis history is sort of like, and this man lived and did these things, and he lived this long and had these children. And that's more like how uh, Judges is. Um, but not everybody, actually, almost very few people in the Old Testament are actually what you would consider righteous, righteous people. They exist, but Jephthah's not one of them. The primary, Jephthah's very much a cautionary tale. And so it's the three fronts I told you about. Number one is, um, you know, don't make deals with God. Uh, there's a lot of warnings about that in, throughout the sacred scripture. Jeff, the story is one. You know, don't don't make deals with God. Your goal as a Christian, and then and then you know, secondary to that, or after that, I guess, or if you if you're now standing on the step of don't make deals with God, the next step above that is always only offer uh, correct, you know, correct sacrifice in worship. And uh, Jephthah makes just a stupid error. Well, it's not stupid. You can tell Jephthah's doing it more or less on purpose, because his, in, in part, because that's sort of one of the lessons, of the historic lessons, is, you know, the Israelites have fallen into idol worship. So that's sort of what Jephthah is treating God as. 
gods and all sacrifice to this idol, which is the Lord, or Yahweh. Um, and he doesn't understand. Like, there's a reason that the sacrificial rules are the way they are. There's lots of reasons that they are the way they are. But one of them is so that you don't offer improper sacrifice. And that's one of the things you have to take as a Christian. You know, you, the proper sacrifice to offer God is yourself, period. It's your life, your decisions, your will. That is what you have to offer. Um, and that's the proper offering. And so that's the, the frame to set yourself in. And then uh, the final piece of it is if you find yourself uh, coming to the Christian life, you know, out of the midst of, of you know, life, you know, living in the cursed earth, <laughs> which is where we live, uh, or on the cursed earth, then uh, you may have made some bad deals. Don't follow through it, right? There could be consequences, and of course, there's prudence to be said. There's prudence to be brought in, and so you know you're you're going to attempt to do the least amount of harm to the fewest number of people possible. But if you cannot follow through with these deals that cause you to hurt yourself and others, and you don't follow through with them, your honor and your pride be damned. Uh, Jesus and God does not give one iota about your pride or about your honor uh, if you care not. He wants your humility. So, if you make a bad deal, don't follow through with it. And that's, so that's sort of the the take the, the takeaway from Jephthah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of what we've been doing here in these old story, these Old Testament stories and how they relate to uh, modern times and how we should interpret them. There are many ways to read the Bible, uh, many ways to read different passages of the Bible, and you know, uh, depending on your school or tradition, um, you'll find uh, four or five. Usually, it's either one or the other. You know, there's four ways or there's five ways, and it just depends on who you're talking to and which Wikipedia page you dropped in on. Um, you know, four or five ways to interpret the Bible. One of those ways is invariably, what does the story or the thing I just read mean to me right now? And that is the aspect that we're investigating with these stories. And as you can see from, you know, the Joshua and from uh, Joseph and Jephthah, I'm not trying to go into the, the literal meaning of the text, and, and by literal I mean the, the meaning the author intended by his, uh, him, you know, by their literary style. That's what literal means, literally, literally reading the Bible. Um, and so, in the case of Judges, the literary style is history, so we're not, I'm not doing a histor, historological review. I'm not trying to say, it was, you know, did Jophna actually live? You know, what, what did this mean about Israel at that time? And do. I've done some of that in these stories, but it's all at the service of trying to figure out what does, why, what did the characters do, the thing they did, and then what does that mean for us? Um, uh, that you know, there's there's the typographical reading. Uh, how do these, um, how does the the events and characters 
and uh, individuals in the Old Testament relate to those in the New Testament. Um, you know, the, the you know, I, there's some people who have put it the, the Bible is one of the first ever hyperlinked book. It, it references itself over and over and over again in all kinds of places. Um, it's actually really beautiful. <laughs> I highly suggest reading the entirety of the Bible. And that is, um, and depending on your, your viewpoint or, like I said, your landing page on Wikipedia where you come from, the interpretation of the Bible, that's one of the things um, that's very important to Catholics when we read and interpret the Bible is to ensure um, that we are interpreting things within especially if we're, if we're moving into the theological the theological moral ethic so um, I'm talking about salvation or talking about God or talking about the, the metaphysical nature of the universe when we look at all of that the, the real big picture stuff when we're reading passages in the Bible everything has to be taken in context and within regard to the whole uh, we never just take parts of sacred scripture and point at it and say, yep, um, you know, this line, this one line in this one section of scripture says this one thing. So obviously it's true, even if another line somewhere else says something that makes it not necessarily literally true. Uh, and so that's, that's also how you deal with contradictions or seeming contradictions as you you, you have to interpret it against the whole of sacred scripture. That's important to Catholics. It's not as important to um, many other Christians who, who have kind of made their, their stance on some Bible passage or another and kind of disregard the rest of scripture in regards to whatever matter it is they've staked their claim for. Um, and even non-Christian who claim the Bible is scripture. So, uh, you know, like Jehovah's Witnesses who are not Christian because they don't believe Jesus is, is God, and that comes from a single Bible passage which talks about Jesus um, having the voice of an archangel, and so they believe he's an archangel um, with complete disregard to all of those passages which very, either very clearly say that he's God or very clearly... Um, are unintelligible unless he's God. Um, for instance, the times that he forgives sins that were not uh, directly offensive to him. Because uh, you can't forgive somebody if they haven't harmed you, right? And so the only way you're able to forgive anybody, um, as in like everybody, is if you are directly offended by the things that they've done. So... So every time Jesus forgives a sinner that hasn't, you know, harmed him, uh, he's doing something that really only God can do. And he is, in fact, declaring himself God, which is why the Pharisees very rapidly get up in arms against him, the Pharisees and the scribe, because they understand that. They know what he's doing. But either way, um, it's just something I want to point out about the way we're reading the scripture is we're only really trying to look at it from that perspective, from the what does this passage mean to us now as Christians? 
Uh, and I'm not even, I'm trying not to say, like, now, as in, like, in this political moment right now in 2021 with COVID. And, and no, no, I'm, I'm saying, like, as a Christian in the now. Um, so that, that's how we're coming at these stories. I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, I know we're, like, three, we're three stories in now, but I, I just want to make make it clear that that's how we're we're approaching these we're not going after these from a full-on historical perspective or a metaphysical theological perspective or from a typological perspective uh you know we might touch on all of that because it's hard not to when you read the the scriptures to mention see it's hard for me not to i I say it's hard not to i'm sure some people don't find it hard at all i do (laughs) because well and I do enjoy the sound of my own voice for a uh, you know, but hey, I guess you do too if you're listening to this, so I do appreciate it. But yeah, that, that's the main thrust of this story for us uh, today as Christians. Jephthah uh, is, is, and judges in general. Remember, judges, your, your, your overall arcing theme is, um, you know, Israel has fallen away from God and it needs... Uh, help or to be saved, and it's the, really the only way to do that is to cry out to God and, and to repent, uh, and that that's like the overarching theme of Christianity in general, right? It's part of the curriculum. Uh, we have a broken relationship with God. God wants to restore that relationship. He sent Jesus Christ to die for our salvation, so you know we have to turn to Christ and repent, um, and then we become children of God. That's I mean, that's kind of the good news in a nutshell. It's often called the curriculum. Um, but that's the, the particular, you know, judges is we want to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites, not necessarily in the shoes of the judges in particular. And with Jephthah, the, it's a very much a cautionary tale about, you know, offering proper sacrifice, about... Um, you know, how muddled we can get when we fall away from God, or we've set up who we think God is in our own mind, and we decide what God wants. Oh, God. And, and so, I, you know, and I haven't touched on that one, so we'll go ahead and touch on that one. But there's that's something we can do, too, right? There's uh, the old saying, you know, we've God made us in our image, and ever since then we've been trying to make him in ours, right? We... Um, we like to give God qualities. We like to make God smaller than he really is, right? We don't treat him as this, as an infinite, eternal uh, being that uh, is inherently not understandable because it's infinite, eternal. Um, you know, we like to think we've got, we've got the, whole, the whole of the reins of what God is and how God acts and, and uh, what God wants from us and you know, it's you know, the only time we need to pay attention to God is that one hour on Sunday or that three hours on Sunday or however, you, you know, and the rest of the time you can act however you want. God doesn't care. No, proper, what, what is proper to God is your life, your whole life, because you owe it to him. I mean, the whole thing's a gift. So that uh, that's supposed to be our orientation, and Jephthah has effectively turned God here in his story into an idol that he thinks sacrificing a human being to 
is something that 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 idol he has set up as being God would want. And we see very clearly in the whole of Scripture before that that human sacrifice is very clearly not something that God actually wants. So that's um, there's that piece of it, and then there's the the deal making. You know, don't make deals with God in the first place. Make sure to offer proper sacrifice. And if you've made bad deals in the past, don't go through with them because they're bad. So I appreciate you listening, and uh, have a nice day. And we will end with a prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear God, the Father of heaven and earth, we thank you today for the graces of our day. Thank you for giving me a safe drive. And give all the listeners uh, your grace and your uh, mental acuity so that they may sift through the spaghetti of uh, random concepts that I presented to them so that it is intelligible. Uh, Dear Lord, in your name we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. May your will be done. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of Long Drive Home in the Dark. May you have a safe drive home.